So today we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 55, which is in your little pamphlet thing. And this is the NIV version. So I read. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the people, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon the nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the Lord's re- renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Thanks, Moji. Well, week 12, semester's pretty much done. I'm glad you're here. It's good to be together uh, opening God's Word. Let's pray. Father, please speak to us. Address us with your Word that doesn't return to you empty, but accomplishes your good, wonderful purposes. Amen. Well, I think it's a universally accepted idea that human beings, homo sapiens, have an insatiable longing for satisfaction. We, we just want it. We, we want things that will satisfy us, those deep cravings of our hearts. If I asked you today, are you satisfied? Do you feel deeply satisfied? I suspect almost all of us will immediately just say, no, I, I, I don't. And even asking the question often triggers that awareness that I, I, I'm not really satisfied. I, I wish things were different. I don't like the life I've got. Although occasionally if I asked you at just the right time, you might feel a bit satisfied. If you've just handed in your thesis and you're most free, you might feel it then. Or you've just consumed a huge kebab and you're licking your fingers and you just feel satisfied at that moment in time. Maybe you had a brilliant day with one of your best friends. But it is like drinking water, isn't it? You know, you're thirsty, you're craving, you've run a half marathon, you're parched and you grab the bottle of water and you chug it down and for a moment you don't feel thirsty anymore. But an hour later, you feel thirsty again. And I think that's what it's like with the deeper things of life as well. 
the same merry-go-round of feeling a little bit satisfied, but it disappears, it evaporates so quickly. And the big question then is, is there anything that really satisfies? Is there anything I can have that won't leave me thirsty again? Something that will permanently satisfy? And one of our difficulties, I think, of being a human is that it's all guesswork and experimentation. We wonder, you know, if I just had the right companion or that career or the right condominium or the degree from the university or the iPhone or, or whatever, maybe that would satisfy us. But until you try it, you don't know. And even when you try it, you don't know if something else has gone wrong. We sort of know it won't satisfy, but what else is there to do? Now, I don't know how dissatisfied you are. I think there are some amongst probably who are deeply dissatisfied. We think, why would I even bother getting up today? We've, we've lost hope that there would be anything that could satisfy us. But for others of us, I think we, we just travel through life and it's a dull background pain. That, that discontent, we wonder if maybe there's more to life even as I finish the next assignment, finish the last assignment and go on to the next one. Well, Isaiah 55, God addresses our dissatisfaction, our longings. He addresses Israel in their exile in Babylon and he addresses us. Israel is at the sharp end, the deep end of dissatisfaction. They're slaves, they're homeless, they're thirsty, deeply thirsty and dissatisfied and even depressed. And God comes in with an amazing offer to them and to us. Verse 1, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread, your labour on what doesn't satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good and you'll delight in the richest of fare. See what God is saying? It's, it's like a water cellar in the marketplace of the Middle East. And he's saying, listen, I've got water. In fact, I've got waters, not just water. Fresh, fresh crisp mountain water. But it's not just water. There's wine and milk as well. See, when you're thirsty, you guzzle a, a, a bottle of water to quench your thirst. But wine and milk is luxury. It's something to delight in, not just to quench your thirst. It's more than survival. It's satisfaction. Or in verse 2, it's, it's like a huge banquet, a meal. Come and eat what is good. You'll delight in the richest of fare. A banquet stacked with meats and, uh, and breads and hummus and everything else that you can imagine. Uh, this is dim sum gone crazy or this is the greatest barbecue in the world. It, it, it'll thrill your taste buds. It'll extend your stomach till it'll feel like it's going to burst till you're satiated and satisfied. But he is talking metaphorically. Verse 3, give ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live, more literally. It's about soul food, soul satisfaction. Not just the physical food and drink, but satisfying the heart. The heart seeks what you think will make it happy. And God is offering what will make you happy. Satisfy the deep longings of your heart. Yeah, you might say, that sounds really appealing. I mean, anybody who's giving away food like that, I'm there, but I don't know whether I can afford it. A bit like those fashion shops. You know the the fashion shops in the high streets, you walk past, and there's all the clothes, all the watches and whatever, and there's no price tags. And I always think, I wonder how much they cost. And the answer is, if you ask that question, you can't afford it. (laughs) But God assures us, you don't need money for this. Come all you who are thirsty. You, You who have no money... 
Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's sort of paradoxical. You buy it, but you buy it without money. That is, this is not worthless junk that you just put on the verge side for anybody else to pick up. This is really valuable. It's incredibly valuable, but it's free because somebody else has paid for it. It's expensive, but it's offered for nicks. But as we've seen, food and drink is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for what really will satisfy your soul. But what is it that will satisfy your soul and my soul? Well, that's what verses... 3 through to 7 are really about. He says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful promise to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you did not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. He says, what I'm going to provide for you is an everlasting covenant, a contract. You think, oh, great, more paperwork. I've had enough of that. How could that be satisfying? Well, stop and think a little bit more. Let's explore this. What covenant contract is he talking about? Well, he says it's God's faithful love promised to David. Now, if you don't know the backstory of this, it comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is the king of Israel. He's conquered all the enemies around. He's created a stability and a peace for the people of Israel. And then God makes these extraordinary promises. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, as you're dead, I'll raise up your offspring after you. He'll come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, your dynasty, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He promises David an eternal kingdom. One of his descendants will sit on his throne, ruling the the world, all the nations, forever. And notice this promise is unconditional. God doesn't say, well, you know, if if you do it right, if you build the right house for me and you you get everything else right in your family, then then I'll do this for you. Because if you put an if there, almost certainly it's going to fail. It'll be rescinded. Now, this is just God coming out and committing himself forever with no conditions to make a descendant of David the king that will bring peace and prosperity to all his people. See, it doesn't just affect the king, it affects all those who are the subjects. Now, when Isaiah speaks, <laughs> the king is a slave in Babylon. But God says, I'm going to raise up a king for you who will lead you to freedom, what you're longing for. See, the benefit of having a king like that, a strong king, a great king, a victorious king is your own security. Enough, he says in verse 5, that you'll summon nations you don't know, and nations you don't know will come running to you. You won't go running to them. You won't be taken off into exile. They'll come to you because of what God does in keeping his covenant. So what God is promising is eternal security. And if you think about it, that's wonderfully satisfying, isn't it? Now, it's got to be permanent to be satisfying. You've had that experience, I guess, of going on holidays, haven't you? And and the trouble with holidays is you know you've got to come home afterwards. And you come home to the job you've got to do, or you come home to the study that's going to start, and the assignments, or you come home to your siblings. And it it takes the edge even off the best holidays, because it just doesn't last long enough. Well, this satisfying life won't have an end. It's not like that holiday. It's offering permanent security, the sort of security no one else, nothing else can offer. 
But what God is offering is not just permanent, it's very personal and relational. So in verse 6 he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now pardon from God may not seem much to you. I'm not sure how you think about it. If you've been able to suppress your conscience sufficiently, if you turn a blind eye to your own evil and the offence it is to God, maybe it doesn't mean much. But if you're aware even of a smidgen of the evil motives that lurk in your heart and mind, when you see them seep out in your actions and your words and you're filled with that shame and regret at the hurt and suspicion that follow, then pardon is what you thirst for, for God to wipe your record clean, to welcome you and restore you. Last week we saw how that happens in Isaiah 53, if you're with us. He, the servant of the Lord, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The cost of our pardon was nothing less than the violent death of God's servant, of God's son, of Jesus himself. For God to freely pardon us, it costs a lot. It costs the son bearing it all on himself to lavish us with forgiveness, to embrace us into his family. And to be pardoned is deeply liberating. See, if you ever live with any fear that you might dis- get disqualified, this pardon overcomes that, doesn't it? it? It just washes it all away. And that is deeply satisfying. It's wonderfully liberating. And it adds to that security. Safety from our enemies, safe with God my creator forever. Even if I feel like I'm not all that uh, secure, I, I am secure. And the result, he says, is glory and joy. Verse 5, he uses this idea of splendour. He's endowed you with splendour, which is a a picture of royalty, covered in the weight of the royal robes. Not just the king, but all of his people ruling with God. And the other side of that is God working everything for our good. He does it for all his children, even now. Your passes and your fails, your hurts and your joys. But more than that... He promises a new creation in verses 12 and 13. You'll go out with joy, led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, they'll join your singing. Why? Because instead of the thorn bush, the scraggly desert um, uh, 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 bushes, they'll grow the juniper, beautiful, luxuriant uh, growth of trees. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. What was desert and ugly and unsatisfying will be beautiful and, and luxurious. And you'll enjoy that great new creation. Even your own body and mind will be renewed. And you'll you'll sing with joy. You'll you'll dance as you traipse through the landscape. See, that is what God is offering Israel. It's what God is offering us. He uses the image of food and drink, wine and the richest of foods that satisfies our physical hunger and thirst. Well, more than satisfies. But he's really talking about food and drink for the soul. Pardon and peace that endure forever. Security that can never be threatened again. All fear and anxiety banished forever. And the joy generated by that experience, from slave to free, from pain to pardon, from hunger to satisfaction. And God opens the door to you and me and says, here it is. 
I provide for you satisfaction. But he does much more than that. Do you see how he starts in verse 1? He doesn't just throw the door open and say, would you like to come in? He says, come. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Come, buy wine and milk. Why spend money? Listen, listen to me. Eat what's good. Give ear and come to me. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. He summons you and me to come and be satisfied. But this is not just an anonymous banquet where you walk in and you stuff yourself silly with everything you can get down your throat. It's come to the waters and come to me. It seeks satisfaction in what I provide, but especially seek the Lord. See, satisfaction isn't in the mere physical pleasures or other things. The the centre of satisfaction is God himself. It's relational, it's personal. So imagine a guy you like invites you to have dinner at Rockpool on Saturday night. I think that's the best restaurant in Perth, isn't it, Rockpool? Imagine you get that invitation and you think, oh, all my birthdays have come together. So you dress up to to enjoy a great night out and he picks you up and, and you arrive at the restaurant and he leads you to the table that he's booked and it's a table for one. And he says to you, I've bought you the best meal you can get at Rockpool. I hope you enjoy it and walks out. (laughs) Do do you feel satisfied with that? Now, the food might be terrific. It might be the best food you've ever eaten, but that's not the only thing you want, is it? It's the companionship. It's the relationship. That's what satisfies. It's the company. And this is no impersonal provision. The satisfaction is in the provider as well as what he provides. It's in God as well as his pardon and security. But even as God offers us free food and drink, real satisfaction, he sort of anticipates that we're going to be a bit reluctant about it. A resistance will come. And he addresses those as he goes through, as he speaks to us. You recognise that some of us won't want his offer. We'll look for alternatives. In verse 1 he says, Come, come, wine and milk, without money. Why spend money, verse 2, on what is not bread? and your labour on what does not satisfy. Because that's what we're tempted to do, isn't it? Spend our dollars, put all our effort into stuff that doesn't really satisfy. And that brings a resistance, because we're distracted, we're looking for satisfaction in other things that can't, that won't satisfy. What is it you think will satisfy? What do you hope? If I started the phrase, if only, how do you finish that? If only I had that, if only she liked me. If only I could pass my exams this semester. If only I owned whatever it might be. If only I could do that trip, that incredible trip to Europe or America or the Antarctic or whatever it might be. If only. If only just had a piece of chocolate now, I could pop in my mouth and savour it. I'd be satisfied. What's your way of finishing that sentence? Well, whatever it is, God says, it's a waste. It won't satisfy you. And often it'll just be a distraction to cover the emptiness that is actually there. A way of pretending and hoping that something somewhere, somehow, will satisfy you. And God says it's a waste of money and effort. You can't buy it. Because true satisfaction only comes as a gift from your Creator, from God himself. Second alternative he addresses is delay. See that in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts and turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them to our God and he will pardon. See, for some people, the best option is to just keep trying everything else but God, knowing you've still got that option as a backup at the end. If I get exhausted with everything else, I end up on the scrap heap somewhere. Well, at that point, I can turn to God and see if he can satisfy. It assumes that God will always be there holding the door open for you. It assumes that you'll come to your senses one day before it's too late. And God says, that's pretty stupid, actually, to delay like that is ignoring reality. So seek the Lord while he may be found. He won't always be open and and, and there to be found. Call on him while he's near. Some people think, I'll just have fun in life. (laughs) I I think somehow, I'm sure actually, that God can't satisfy. And so I'll try everything else that I think might be able to satisfy. I'll, I'll just have fun and if it all falls flat, well, I could try God on my deathbed. But there's one obvious problem with that. Two, really. You don't know when you'll be on your deathbed. But the other one is, as you delay every time, as each time you say, no, God, I don't want your offer, I'll, I'll take this, you get better and better at saying no to God. Why do you think you'll change? What makes you so confident that one day you will wake up to yourself and make the wise choice if you keep making a foolish one? The third alternative is to dismiss the offer of God as unattractive or untrustworthy. Verse 8, God addresses that. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. The people of Israel, they push back to God on God and and his offer saying, Hey God, we don't like the way you do it. We don't like you sending Cyrus, that pagan king, to, to be our rescuer. We want to be the Jedi Knight. We want to do it ourselves. Are we good enough for it? And others push back on God and say, I don't want Jesus dying for me. I don't like your ways, God. I think my ways are cleverer. My ways are better. They give me a bit more pride in myself than what you've done in rescuing me by your son. And God says, my ways are higher than your ways. To think that you've got it right and God has got it wrong is pretty foolish in itself. It shows you've probably got it wrong. But it addresses the fear that some people might have that what God is promising, he can't deliver, that he's untrustworthy. Verse 10, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It is a great promises of God, aren't they? Come, I'll satisfy you. I'll satisfy your deepest longings. But some people push back on God and say, no, God, you'll never deliver. They're just empty words, pleasant platitudes. God says, no, that's not what what my word is like. My word is like the rain. Uh, This year we've had some rain across the the wildflower uh, areas in in the uh, northeast, up from Perth. And the people who've been up, they say, all you need is a bit of rain and the wildflowers just go everywhere. The farmers this year, it was a bit late, but they got some good rain. And when the rain comes, the crops grow. You drive around and all the canola is bright yellow and all the wheat is is there. And this has been hit by frost, almost ready to harvest. It's inevitable. Well, my word is like that, says God. It produces that sort of effect. It's inevitable because it's my word. It's powerful. I stand behind it. I will deliver. 
Well, where does this take us? Well, Cyrus did come. Babylon fell. The exiles were released. They returned. But the return to Jerusalem was deeply unsatisfying for lots of reasons. And almost 600 years later, Jesus was walking through Samaria, a part of the world that Jews never walked through. And he got thirsty. I presume it was a warm, sunny day. And he went to the well in the middle of the village and he asked a local to give him some water. And she balks. You don't ask people like me for water. And they have a little conversation. And this is what Jesus says to her. Everyone who drinks this water out of the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Permanent life, permanent satisfaction. Now, she's a bit confused. She's not quite sure what to do with that. But can you see what's behind what Jesus says? It's Isaiah 53, isn't it? I'm now, he's now saying, I'm the living water. I'm the source of satisfaction that your thirst seeks for. So now's the time to drink, and I'm the one who delivers. It's in me that you'll find that satisfaction. Or in John 6, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus stands up and declares, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You hungry? You feeling dissatisfied, says Jesus, will come and believe in me. And you will be satisfied, fully, permanently. I'll pick up one more, John 7. At the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice to anybody who would hear, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And John tells us he's talking about the Holy Spirit who was to be poured out later. So it's not just that God quenches your personal thirst. That Jesus is able to satisfy you, but you become the source of life-giving water to others as well. Somehow the waters flow through you to others. They're staggering words, aren't they? Because they're saying that the satisfaction is not just a personal satisfaction. It it goes on and, and affects other people around you, your family, your friends, your classmates. And I want you to notice how staggering these words of Jesus are. Someone like Richard Dawkins has never offered to satisfy you. He says, actually, life is pretty pointless. The best you can hope for is a little bit of awe as you stare in wonder at the universe around you. I can't deliver this sort of thing. Please don't come to me thinking that I can satisfy you. I can't do it. I'm a mere human. The Buddha... Well, he basically says, I think I found a little bit of water, so I point you to it. But I'm not it. But Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life that can satisfy you. He is God's feast, God's banquet. And if you come to him and trust him, he provides that pardon for you. Full and free forgiveness. And he fills you with this spirit, the joy of a new nature. But also the thrill of bringing life to others. I know some of you have had that thrill this year. As you've told friends about Jesus, you've prayed for them. Some of you have read Luke's Gospel with friends and you've seen them come to faith in Jesus. You've seen life flowing into their lives. And there is no greater feeling than that. To have that sort of effect, to be used by God to do something that is eternal. Can't be beaten. 
It's wonderful. And that's part of what Jesus promises. But some of you might be sitting there thinking, but Tim, I've come to Jesus. I've trusted him. I am trusting him, but my life still feels sort of unsatisfying. I still feel vaguely empty. I still feel anxious. And I don't doubt the reality of that. It, It is true. We all still feel a bit like that. But let me make two comments to that. The first is, Jesus is the only source of true satisfaction. Even if that's not all that you experience at the moment. It's interesting, I think, that the research that's being done around the world, all over the place at the moment, resonates with, it points clearly in the direction that Jesus is talking in. That is, that satisfaction comes in relationships. I was uh, doing a bit of research last night, and uh, one of the unique bits of research that's being done in the world at the moment, it's almost over, is a longitudinal study that's been going for 80 years uh, in Boston, where 80 years ago, 1938, uh, they, uh, they selected a group of 700 and something people, some of them privileged background, some of them underprivileged background. And they've interviewed them every year about their life, their circumstances, their mental health, uh, how satisfied they feel. And there's one consistent factor to do with satisfaction. One consistent factor, and only one, and that is the quality of relationships that you're in. If you're in good quality relationships, then your your mental satisfaction is high and even your physical health is high. But the trouble is that the quality of all our relationships with each other is much less than we desire and what we need. But that's not true with Jesus. Jesus died for you. He loved you without qualification. And he continues to love you without qualification. He rose again to give you the security that even death cannot rob you of, of eternal life. He, he, he rose again so that you will never be condemned ever. You can be. You are completely secure with him. Now, you may not feel satisfied, but that's the only basis that you can feel satisfied at the moment. And it will save you from that merry-go-round of just trying anything and everything else apart from Jesus to see if it will satisfy. But secondly, this passage tells us that there's a fullness yet to come. Verse 12 and 13, there will be a new creation one day, and then you will experience that satisfaction in all its fullness. You'll, you'll, you'll go out in joy. You'll skip and dance down the street. Because life will be permanently forever satisfying in the new creation. As you see Jesus face to face. When you're known, when you know even as you are known. So what do we do? Come. That's how it starts, isn't it? Come. Come all you who are thirsty. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I know it's sort of the end of semester and the, the, the temptation is to say, I'll think about this after the end of semester when I've, I've done my exams, but God's calling you today to come. What else will satisfy you? I hope you do pass your exams, but that won't satisfy you. Why starve to death? Why even starve for another few weeks if Jesus died for you, if pardon and life is available Will you come? Come to Jesus, the living water, the bread of life. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and called us to come to you.
We thank you that you satisfy and you provide all we need to be fully human, to satisfy our deepest longings. Lord Jesus, please enable us to trust you, to come to you and find life in you. Amen.